First Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1, and Paul is writing what is arguably the earliest letter written in the New Testament to a church that he himself had planted on his second missionary journey, as we find recorded in Acts chapter 16. And now as he is writing this church, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted every one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the special privileges that we have, especially living when we live at this era of church history, is that we get to read the great writings and also the personal journals of some of the great pastors and theologians in church history. Uh, Such was the journal of David Brainerd, the 18th century missionary to the Indians in Uh, the Northampton area, New Jersey, New York, uh, who lived for a time with Jonathan Edwards. Edwards would go on to publish Brainerd's diary after he died in his 20s. And that journal would become instrumental in fueling the missionary movement throughout the world. Men like Henry Martin and some of the great particular Baptists that started the missionary movement throughout India uh, were fueled by zeal from reading Brainerd's diary. And then there were the Scottish theologians of the 19th century who were also deeply moved by reading uh, the, the entries in Brainerd's diary. And such was Robert Murray McShane and Andrew Bonar. And McShane and Bonar and their, their companions would do missionary work in Israel, but they would also labor as pastors in Scotland. And not long after Robert Murray McShane had gotten a copy of Brainerd's diary in 1832, he wrote this. As he read what Brainerd revealed about what was going on inside of him as a minister, um, McShane said, what conflicts, what depressions, desertions, strength, advancement, victories within your torn bosom. I cannot express what I think when I think of you tonight, more set upon missionary enterprise than ever. There was something about what Brainerd was revealing in his diary about what God was doing in his soul that was stirring up ministers 
around the world to give themselves more fully to gospel work. And it's interesting, even as McShane in his diary wrote what I just read, that Bonar, who published McShane's diary and who was his close friend, reading McShane's entries, wrote this. I was made to see that I was very backward in point of real holiness. I was led much more to plead that I was the least of all the saints, though that's difficult with me because of the pride of my heart. Oh, what I wonder at in Robert McShane more than all else is his simple feeling of desire to show God's grace and to feed upon it himself. Now, I've read to you those two entries And I've sought to tie together how those journals are working in the lives of individuals because really what the Apostle Paul is giving us in 1 Thessalonians is an inlet, an avenue into what is going on in his mind and his heart. Um, You know, we sometimes mistakenly think of the Apostle Paul as sort of a type A kind of guy that never cries, never tears up, isn't affectionate, isn't very empathetic because he's so strong and he's so bold and he's... He's so unrelenting in his zeal for Christ, and he's so forward in taking on error in the church in a way that the other apostles weren't. And yet here as we read about the apostles' inner life, his motives, his manner, and his ministry among the members of this church that he knew intimately and had a very special connection with, um, we see that there is a tenderness and a gentleness, an affection and a warmth. And that there's a purity in his motives among those to whom he ministers. Now, no doubt, Paul has come under attack. We don't know uh, who is attacking the apostle like we do in some of the other letters that he writes. But it's very clear he's writing to a church that's maybe six months old. And he's writing to a church in about 50 A.D. It's a very young church. It's a church that's received the word of God, as we're going to see here tonight. They've they've embraced it. They believe the gospel. They've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They have they have become themselves models of what a Christian church ought to look like. As a young church who has received the word of God for the first time and has trusted in the Lord Jesus. And yet someone's attacking the Apostle Paul. And we know that because Paul is writing now a very personal defense. And he's not just defending his apostolic ministry like he does in Galatians. It's very interesting. We we take away from this that what Paul is really doing is he is having to defend his own ministry motives Because those who are attacking him can only attack his person because they can't trump his his arguments. Eric Alexander put it so well. Listen to this. Those who are unable to discredit the message attempt to destroy the messenger. Those who cannot destroy the message inevitably will try to destroy the messenger. And so we have to conclude that here Paul is being attacked and he's having to defend himself and he's having to do so to a people who ought to know better. Now, I want us to consider three things tonight. First, I want us to consider the motives of true gospel ministers. Then secondly, I want us to consider the manner of true gospel ministry. And finally, I want us to consider the reception of true gospel ministers. So the, the motives, the manner, 
and the reception of true gospel ministers and their ministry. Well, notice that Paul will repeatedly throughout this section, if you took a a pencil or a pen and you highlighted all of the introductory words in every transitional section of, of the text that we're looking at, Paul is everywhere going to say things like this. You know, you know, you know, you remember, remember, you know. So nothing Paul is going to tell them is new. He's not coming and saying, listen, I know you don't really know what kind of person I am, but let me tell you what kind of person I am. He's saying, you know, you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Notice verse one and then notice verse five in the middle of verse five, as you know, God is witness. And then notice the beginning of verse nine for you remember Brothers, our labor and toil. And so, as is sometimes necessary in churches, ministers have to remind the people of what they've been like because people are easily swayed and turned away from the minister that God has called to shepherd them. Such was the case with Jonathan Edwards. I was reading this last week, uh, Jonathan Edwards' farewell sermon, the greatest theologian America ever produced, or the greatest... American theologian Britain ever produced. And um, and Jonathan Edwards in his farewell sermon to a congregation that kicked him out because they didn't like how he handled one pastoral situation. One. He says in the middle of that sermon, there have been contentions among you since I've been here and it has broken my heart. And he has to be strong even as he peacefully departs from them to minister to the Indians there outside of Northampton. Paul is having to defend his ministry. It's very interesting. This hit me several years ago. It should strike us as a thing that we ought to be startled by, that the great Apostle Paul is constantly having to defend his ministry to churches he planted. What, what, what does that say about the fragility of the church? How easy believers, true believers, will turn away from the best of gospel ministers. But here the apostle is going to tell them things that they already know. And he's going to set out really his labors in light of the purity of his motives. And notice this in verse 2. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much Conflict. What Paul's saying to them is, look, we came to you afflicted. We came to you being persecuted. We came to you being opposed. We we pressed through all of the afflictions, all of the trials, all of the difficulties, just so we could bring the gospel to you. Our motive was pure. We 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 didn't do this because it brought us comfort or ease or or popularity. And he'll he'll go into this. He says we came to you in much conflict. We came to you, you know what affliction we endured and and how we pressed through that. And there's something beautiful about a minister of the gospel who has himself undergone afflictions and how the people of God ought to receive a man who ministers the gospel to them in the midst of those afflictions and despite those afflictions. It was McShane, who I mentioned earlier, who said this, and this is one of the most beautiful quotes I've read. Some flowers must be bruised before they emit any fragrance. All the wounds of Christ send out sweetness. All the sorrows of Christians do the same. 
Commend me to a bruised brother, a broken reed, one like the son of man. The man of sorrows is never far from him. You see, what McShane is saying is here is Paul. Here is a bruised reed. Here is a man who has been greatly afflicted for the sake of the gospel. And what they ought to know is that Christ is near to him. They ought to know that such a one is near to Christ and Christ is near to such a one. And that as he comes to them, he is coming as a representative of Christ, willing to endure whatever he's had to endure for the sake of bringing the gospel to them. Now, as Paul more pointedly focuses on his motives, he is now going to tell us uh, about motives that he conscientiously avoided in ministry. And, and the first section that we're going to look at here, he's going to set out five things that he didn't do, five motives that, that didn't fuel Paul in ministry. Notice, he says, first, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So the first thing that Paul says uh, we weren't motivated by, the very first thing, was deception. It would have been very easy for a man in the first century in a day of uh, monologues, in a day in which philosophy and and teachers were large and and could make a good living on that, to try to come and deceive a people with a new philosophy or a new teaching to draw them away after themselves. Remember when Paul goes into Athens and and they say, what is this seed picker doing? They're they're basically saying he's just here trying to propagate some new thing to make money. And he's saying, we didn't come to you to trick you. We didn't come with any deception. Nothing about the message that Paul brought was untrue. Um, there, There was no deceit or trickery. And then he says, notice, we didn't come to you with any error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Notice verse four, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but God who tests the heart. So the second thing Paul says he didn't come with was a desire to please man. Now, before I go through the other three motives that Paul tells us he didn't have um, in pursuing and laboring in gospel ministry. I want to tell you, I had a seminary professor when I was a young seminarian, and he would often tell the students, make sure you know your motives and what's in your heart, because many men go into gospel ministry with the wrong motives. Some men go into gospel ministry because they want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want power. They want influence. They want people to look at them. They, they want the platform. They want the stage. They want the influence. Um, other men sadly go into ministry, and Paul will talk about this in a moment, go into ministry for money, for a living. Well, it's an easier way to make a living than doing X, Y, or Z. Some go because they're, they're self-righteous in their motives, and they think that if they labor in ministry that somehow God is going to accept them for that. Remember, Jesus said, many will say on the last day, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name? Cast out demons in your name. And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. People do ministry for all kinds of wrong reasons. And one of those, Paul says here, is to minister in such a way that you just make everybody happy. Paul says, we didn't do this to please men. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul is going to tell us 
Later on, he didn't walk in to offend as many people as he possibly could. Sometimes in Reformed churches, and let me say this, and if I'm the only one that tells you, I doubt I am, but if I am, let it sink in. Sometimes in Reformed churches, there's the mistaken notion that if I'm faithful, then I will offend you no matter what, because I'm speaking the truth and you need to receive it. And that was not the apostles' goal. Notice Paul, Paul juxtaposes um, the, the faulty motive of pleasing men with a desire to please God. It wasn't, it wasn't not to please men. It wasn't to offend as many as possible. It was to please God who tests the heart so that whatever the minister of the gospel does, what should drive him is what does God think about me, my motives, my life, and what I'm doing in propagating the message he's entrusted to me. Because on Judgment Day, the only thing that's going to matter is what God thinks. A number of years ago at the General Assembly of our denomination, Sinclair Ferguson preached a sermon on Romans 8, and he gave an illustration he had heard from a minister who said to him once, you know, Sinclair, um, when you look at me, all you see is the scaffolding. When we lived in Philadelphia in 2007, Um, We would walk by these beautiful old buildings that were being refurbished, but you couldn't see anything about the building. All you could see was the scaffolding. And Sinclair said on Judgment Day, that scaffolding is going to be taken down. And then you'll really see what's behind it. You know, you can't judge motives by shaking a man's hand and looking in his eyes. You can't judge a minister's motives by merely looking on at them. Paul says, our motives were not to please men, but God. Notice he says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, he gives us a third motive that he says was not motivating him. Notice he says in verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery. This is a little more subtle. It's hard to know if you're being flattered. It's not wrong to compliment people. It's not wrong to be complimented. And yet the Bible speaks a great deal about the evil of flattery. Flatterers destroy. They pull down with their tongue. You can flatter in very subtle ways. It would be tempting, I think, for ministers, if their motives were not right, to try to flatter people in order to keep them engaged in the ministry. Um, who doesn't want their ego stroked just a little bit. Paul says, we didn't come with flattery. And then notice, and this is a big one, he says at the end of verse 5, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Now, what's interesting about this is when you read about the Apostle Paul's pre-conversion life, Paul was a zealous Pharisee, a religious leader in Israel. And remember, Jesus said, as he told parables, Luke tells us this, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And Paul will tell us in Romans 7, when he talks about the work of God's law on his conscience and the convicting power of God and the the use of the law to convict of sin, he says, I would not have known covetousness unless the law said you shall not covet. And what Paul's saying is before he was converted, he was a greedy and covetous person. 
But here he says, as now the great converted Apostle Paul, I didn't come to you with greed. I didn't come with motives for your money. In fact, Paul will go so far, and we'll see this in a minute, Paul will go so far as to say, in this church and two other churches, I don't want any of your money. In fact, I'll do my tent-making ministry just for the spread of the gospel, just so you know that I'm not in this for a paycheck. Now, this is the same apostle who will say, pay your pastors well. So he's not making a blanket statement. He's talking about the hidden motive of the heart. And insofar as Paul knows his motives, he can say, I didn't come to you with greed in my heart. There is a final and perhaps a summary motive that Paul says he conscientiously avoided. Notice verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Now, this is maybe one of the most difficult because we live in a world where you are catered to think about success and affirmation. I pastored a church in a military town for 10 years, and 90% of the conversations I had with the Army officers was how and when they were going to get their next promotion and if I would come to their ceremony. And that was all right and good. And that's the way that system works, and it's supposed to work that way. And in the business world, people are working up the corporate ladder, and in almost every sphere of life under the sun, people are laboring for advancement, promotion, and affirmation. And the Apostle Paul says there is zero room in gospel ministry for a desire to be seen and praised by men. Because, because Paul will tell us, as Jeremiah tells us, let him who glory, let him glory in the Lord. Eric Alexander, and this is beautiful, listen to this. Eric Alexander says, the ultimate reason why motives matter is because the Lord has said, my glory I will not give to another. Why is Paul even going through a dismissal of all these wrong motives? Alexander says, because the Lord has said, my glory I will not give to another. So in whatever sense I am seeking glory for myself and robbing God of it, and it is altogether possible for someone to use the service of God for the service of self, and that goes for all of us, it's altogether possible to serve in the church for self rather than for the Lord. Alexander says, in whatever measure we are doing that, God will withdraw from you. He will certainly allow you to get whatever glory you're angling after. But so far as a true work of God is concerned, God will remove his blessing. I think it's actually the biggest wrong motive that Paul is setting out before the Thessalonians and saying, we weren't seeking your praise or the praise of anyone. And by way of contrast, those who were casting aspersions on Paul were seeking that praise. All of the false teachers, all of the false apostles, everyone who had crept into the early church, everyone in churches today who are cutting off true gospel ministry and ministers and a true gospel message inevitably are seeking glory for themselves. And as Alexander says, God will give them what they want, but they won't get the blessing of God as the apostle God. Now, 
There are now five, and let's go through them very quickly, five positive statements about the manner in which Paul did minister. He gave us the negative motives, things he didn't do. Now he tells us exactly what he did do. Notice verse 7. First of all, he said, we were gentle among you. Now, I do think this is a, this is a, a necessary word in our day in serious-minded churches where sometimes gentleness is wrongly chalked up to effeminacy and the church loses the blessing of being cared for with real Christ-like gentleness. Because the only way Jesus ever spoke about himself, though he is many more things than this, is to say, come unto me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So that when Jesus speaks about himself, the way he speaks about himself is as the gentle redeemer who welcomes burdened sinners to himself. And so it is fitting that ministers of the gospel would be gentle among the people of God. Notice the analogy that Paul gives in verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This illustration, to use a pun, is pregnant. It's pregnant with beautiful imagery of a mother getting up and nursing her baby all hours of the night, feeding that child, caring for that child, tenderly holding that child, wondering if that child is doing well, wondering if that child's getting the rest that it needs. And, and Paul says we were like the nursing mother. That's the first description he gives to this infant church. We were like a nursing mother among you, gentle. And then notice, he says in verse 8, so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves, because you had become dear to us. Now, Paul uses a word that's very difficult to translate, and in fact, there is no English equivalent for, for the word that is translated here, affectionately desirous. But the word carries with it this, this beautiful idea about a desire connected to the most tender feelings of the heart. So that whenever the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy were talking about the church in Thessalonica and whenever they were interacting with them, there was, a, there was an affectionate longing to be with them in fellowship, worshiping with them, praying with them, singing with them, teaching them, laboring with them. Um, I often think, what would, it, what would it look like in churches if faithful ministers ran after this while at the same time running after sound doctrine? So affectionately longing, desiring to be with you and to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves. You see, gospel ministry is so much more than just preaching. It's not less than that, but it is opening our hearts to the people of God. We live in a very individualistic society. We live in a very individualistic age. And I actually wonder if unbelievers around us saw such affection between ministers and the people and the people and one another, that that's one of the most powerful witnesses to a world that doesn't have that and doesn't know that. It can only be produced by the love of Christ in the hearts of the people of God. Notice Paul now 
tells us another thing. We've touched on this. He says in verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Here, as the gospel is just going to the nations, and Paul doesn't want there to be any hindrance to the message of Christ crucified, conquering and triumphing, he was willing to do a tent-making ministry to pay for his own ministry among them so that they wouldn't be burdened and that he could just bring the blessing of the gospel to them. Now, notice that Paul, as he goes on, is going to give us two more descriptions of the way in which he came to them. Notice verse 10. He says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteously and blamelessly was our conduct toward you who believe. So Paul is saying we we conducted ourselves with godliness. We were upright. We practiced what we preached. Um, I had a mentor who used to say to me, you know, you can't lead a church by telling the people, hey, go over there. You have to do what Jesus did. Follow me. Because you can't expect people to go where you're not willing to go. And Paul says how holy and righteously and blamelessly we conducted ourselves, not sinlessly, but uprightly among you so that you would follow our example as we're following Christ. And then notice the last description he gives. He now counters the illustration of the nursing mother in verse 11. He says, you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, It would be easy to take the first few descriptions about the manner in which Paul ministered among them and to sort of shy away from the hard work of saying hard things and teaching hard things, which is an essential part of the gospel. It's really interesting that Paul sees in the analogy of the mother and the father together the roles that God has given them respectively, a complete picture of the minister of the gospel. The mother is nurturing. The father is exhorting. The mother is gentle and patient. The father, usually not. (laughs) ought to be the father more direct more to the point um, less less nurturing at times here Paul sees this angle this side of the ministry and he's saying a robust gospel ministry and the way I came to you was with all of those sides and angles and that's the complete picture I want us to leave off at these verses and think about both what a true gospel minister ought to look like, and then what we ought to look like in light of that. Because at the end of the day, all the characteristics of a true gospel minister ought to be true of all the people of God. Jesus didn't just give the Beatitudes to the apostles. He doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is just for ministers. There's a sense where all of us have to learn to examine our motives tell you, this was challenging for me this week as I read this and I thought, how many mixed motives go on inside? If I could pull down the scaffolding, you wouldn't like what you saw at times. And I think every true minister would say that. McShane often lamented 
various species of the sin of pride in his heart, in his diary. He, he bemoaned all the pride that he saw, the love of the praise of men. He fought against that. Um, we have to fight against wrong motives in service. I have known many people in the church, not just ministers, who serve for reputation. They served because they wanted to be seen for their service. I actually had a woman tell me once, uh, I had to talk to a woman about a situation in which she had let the church down because of something else, and she said, I know I just love reputation, that, that you could verbalize that. People minister because they think God's going to accept them. He won't. He only accepts us because of Christ. Um, it's Christ alone. It's trust in Jesus alone. It's not trust in Jesus, and if I serve enough, maybe God will accept me on judgment day. He won't. It's the righteousness of Christ alone and the forgiveness of sins in his blood or, or nothing or judgment. We have to be a people that examine our motives. The pastors of this church have to examine our motives and ask are we pressing into this example? The way McShane pressed into the example of Brainerd. Are we pressing into the example of the Apostle Paul? I think that as that happens, the church will take a shape and a form that, that will be beautiful. And it will really look like what God wants it to look like in this world. There's not many good models out there. There's not many. The Apostle's given us one. The Lord's given us this inlet. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, as we read about the inner life of the Apostle Paul, we are um, simultaneously convicted and encouraged. Lord, these things feel so far beyond us, and they are. And yet we know that they're not beyond your grace and the working of your spirit and your word. We pray, our Father, that you would change us and transform us by the power of the gospel, that you would free us from the love of the praise of men, that you would free us from the love of money, that you would free us from any deception or flattery, that you would make us a people who um, pour our lives out in tender affection, in kindness, in gentleness, in faithfulness, in uprightness, and godliness for the sake of the gospel. We pray, our God, that you would work in our minds and our hearts to that end. We pray that in the end you would receive glory and that you would give us joy in sharing in this ministry. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.